Afterthought on CKUW 95.9 FM. My name is Erica Weeb. And I'm Lynn Fernandez. We'd love to hear from you. Please email us at afterthought, that's one word, at ckuw.ca. Hello and thanks for tuning in to Afterthought. My name is Erica Weeb, and the date of this recording is May the 9th, 2022. And today we're talking about a new book that has just come out, uh, published by Between the Lines in Toronto. It's called Disarm, Defund, Dismantle, Police Abolition in Canada. It's edited by Shiri Pasternak, Kevin Walby, and Abby Stadnick. And it tackles the policing issue from the point of view of academics, activists, and people with lived experience, including sex workers and drug users. Particularly since the murder of George Floyd and the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, there's been a lot of discussion about deep flaws in the policing and justice systems and what should be done about it, including here in Winnipeg. There are a range of opinions on this issue, and this book makes the case for radical change in policing and lays out historical and current reasons for this. And joining me today to talk about this are Kevin Walby and Ted Rutland. Thanks to both of you for being on the show. Kevin is Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at the University of Winnipeg and co-author of Police Funding, Dark Money, and the Greedy Institution, also just published in 2022 by Rutledge, as well as one of the editors and authors of the book we're talking about today. My other guest, Ted Rutland, is a Montreal-based teacher, writer, and activist. He's a founding member of the Defund the Police Coalition in Montreal. And both Ted and Kevin contributed a chapter to this book. So I'd like to start just by diving into the big question right from the start that I think a lot of people have when this subject comes up. So are we talking here about abolishing police in Canada or are we talking about increments of police abolition or both or somewhere along the spectrum? Does somebody want to tackle that one? How about you, uh, Ted? Sure. Well, you know, my politics are abolitionist, and so I'm committed to a very long-term struggle that would seek to create a society in which police uh, and prisons are no longer necessary. But I'm not, you know, uh, I don't need for someone who um, subscribed to that politics to have a conversation. And I think that um, defunding the police has emerged as a movement that kind of can bring to mind a movement towards a better society. And I think if we could, you know, if we could defund the police by 50% and reinvest that money, I think we'd be in a much better position to think about where do we want to go from there. And so I think the book, uh, the chapter that, that, that I co-authored is called Defund to Abolish. And so it's meant to be a, a step along the way. But again, I think that we're, we're thinking about taking steps that will enable us to reflect better on the steps ahead when we get there. Okay, that's helpful because I think a lot of people move directly, you know, to the last step kind of thing. And that's where they get off track. So, but I mean, at the same time, you got to kind of aim towards that last step, right? Yeah, if I could just jump in, sure. I, I would say that that's a really useful way of putting it, defunding to abolish. 
uh, I, I think it gives social movements and, and justice groups concrete things to work toward uh, at the same time as it presents a, a kind of goal of a, of a transformation in our society that would lead to hopefully better health and safety outcomes. And I would also say, if you just historicize it a little bit and think outside of policing, we've had other kinds of institutions that cause harm. We've had other kinds of institutions that don't do exactly what they say they're doing. And in the past, we've gotten rid of those institutions, we've abolished them, we've turned them into something else. And I think that's kind of what we're talking about with policing, too, is we've realized there's now a societal conversation that police aren't doing exactly what they say they're doing. They're causing more harm than good a lot of the time. And so there's a need to, to change this institution, and defunding, abolishing is, is the, the steps to take to do that. Well, I, th I think the policing and justice systems as they are now have been there for so long that we just assume that that's the way it, you know, that's the way it needs to be. And uh, this conversation is saying, hey, wait a minute, let's take another look at that. Yeah, I would say that's true. And one of the things that some of the chapters do, including mine um, that I co-authored, is to trace the history of policing and the struggle against it. And so one of the things that's interesting is, you know, police departments haven't actually existed that long. They've existed since the late 1800s. Um, I would say that something that looks a lot like policing pre-existed police departments. It's not that policing emerged with police departments. Um, but in the early days of police departments, they didn't really have any illusions about what they were doing. They were created to protect property. They were there to protect the, to, to police the so-called dangerous classes, meaning you know the working class and industrialized cities. And it's only in the mid 20th century that they rebranded themselves as a crime fighters, and then a little bit later, uh, institutions that provide a feeling of security. And it was you know in the middle of of uh, the contestation against police racism and violence that police departments across North America adopted the slogan uh, to protect and serve. And so looking at the history can help us understand a little bit about why the police are so harmful now and why they don't seem to be providing safety. It's just, I mean, that became a justification for police 100 years after they were created. Yeah, well, let's, since you started talking about your chapter, let's, uh, let's continue with that, and then I'll get back to your, your chapter, Kevin. So I found it really interesting, like sort of the origins in Montreal in particular, of, of, uh, of what it looked like before an official police department was started. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. I mean, and so we tried to do in the chapter what people have done in other cities, um, in particular the United States, is try to trace where the police come from. And the, the roots of, of the police um, uh, across, you know, Turtle Island are, are lodged in the policing of indigenous people on stolen land, the policing of enslaved Africans, um, and the policing of uh, the poor and working class as the society industrializes and becomes a capitalist society. Um, and so prior to the police department um, being created in Montreal, there was a system where, you know, you have a magistrate, which what today we would call a judge, and crimes could be reported to the magistrate. 
if you were um, assessed, you know, if you were accused of a crime, you'd be asked to show up, and if you didn't, they'd dispatch the they'd dispatch a bailiff, which looks a lot like a police officer in some ways. They also had a military patrol um, in Colonial Montreal uh, beginning at 9 p.m. Um, and the military patrol did a lot of what police patrols did. They, they kept um, poor people, indentured servants, and enslaved people uh, under surveillance, um, intervened a lot in the lives of, of people who might have been um, drunk in public, um, people who looked like sex workers to, the, to uh, the military patrol, which can really just mean um, poor women uh, in public spaces. And, and I guess the final thing is that when it comes to freedom runners, or what some people would call escaped slaves, basically what happens, and this is um, Charmaine Nelson's great work on Montreal shows this, that all white people are essentially deputized to retrieve the enslaved um, person, re re retrieve the person who has committed the ultimate crime of stealing themselves, of stealing their property. And so I think that you know when we talk about things like the way that white people today um, are trained to think that the police are there to protect us and that we should call the police and see them as our protector, there's an extremely long history of that. And I'm a white person myself, uh, and so you know, I'm speaking about my own trajectory in the world and, and speaking from a position where uh, I'm interested in educating a lot of different kinds of people, but particularly white people. And uh, you know, it's, this is a, a social position that is, was created a long time ago that persists in the present that we need to unmake the position where you're using um, the power, the most violent power of the state to serve your own interests at great expense to other people. Right, so it was basically there to serve the upper classes and to keep the uh, people of color suppressed. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, yeah that does provide some really good context. Um, and Kevin, in your chapter, uh, called Against the Social Harms of Policing, you lay out four grounds for police abolition, uh, that it's built upon colonialism and imperialism and therefore is detrimental towards people of color who have also always been the prime victims of colonialism and imperialism. Two, that policing consumes an irrational number of resources and it's neither sustainable nor justifiable. Three, that police organizations have grown disproportionately to other organizations that people depend on to survive. And four, that police cause harm. Do you want to expand on any of those or clarify? Yeah, maybe I'll just try to clarify the last one, the okay. idea of, of harm, because uh, I think people see the harm police do in some ways, but we don't see a lot of the harm that police do because it's less visible. So we see some of the harm, we see police shooting people when they respond to calls for uh, service and, and a lot of times they're calls for service that police really have no business responding to like uh, wellness checks, people in mental health distress, people who are in need of some counseling, addiction services, maybe housing services. So police will respond and then quite often they will use violent deadly force they will kill someone by shooting them by beating them by tasering them and that's a kind of individual harm i would say and we see that it's reported on sometimes not all the time 
but uh, it's, it's reported on. In the social media age, uh, citizens can also take pictures, sometimes very gruesome pictures of this kind of individual harm. But I think there's another harm that deserves as much attention, and that's what I call in the chapter the social harms of policing. And here I'm pointing to just the harms of criminalization itself, the harm of a criminal procedure. So when we respond with police to every transgression, every kind of misstep people take in their lives in our society, and we, we criminalize them, we give them a criminal sentence, we put them behind bars, we give them some kind of criminal penalty. What we're doing is we're not only taking away some rights from that person or I don't know, sometimes there's conservative rhetoric around teaching them a lesson, you know, giving them their, their desserts. Uh, well, that's not the end of the story. Actually, there's a lot of criminological and sociological research that shows criminalization harms whole communities. So yes, you take that one person out and you throw them in jail, and that doesn't really accomplish what we say that it does either, but the, the harm we don't usually trace out and and show is that in that neighborhood then, families are broken down, they're dislocated. There's a great book by Todd Clear called Imprisoning Communities that shows that when you criminalize certain neighborhoods, and often they are neighborhoods of people of color, you know, divorce rates go up, education rates go down, access to health care goes down, access to employment goes down. So criminalization creates all of these other harms that kind of like disintegrates the community. And so it, it's, it's not just that the, the violence of policing uh, is a, a social problem, it's that the, the generational harm of criminalization is a huge social problem that we're only beginning to recognize. The more we criminalize people, the less healthy our communities and neighborhoods are going to be in the future. We're actually setting ourselves up to have more transgression, more people in distress, more people who can't access social services because we've been dislocating their families and their, their streets, their neighborhoods, block by block for years and years through this power of criminalization. That, that provides a good uh, explanation of that harm concept. So I, I just want to ask you, I think both of you have made the argument that capitalism is tightly connected to the existence of the current policing and justice systems. But if we just remove the policing and justice systems, we still have the capitalist system. So how does that work? Let's see, uh, Kevin? No, I, I, okay. I, think it's a, I think it's a great question. Uh, one, for anyone engaged in activism and advocacy in the criminal justice sphere, but for other social movements too. And I think that you know, the struggles for justice that we see in one kind of sphere of practice you know, can't be disconnected from other struggles for justice. So struggles for economic justice, struggles against capitalism can't be disconnected from, say, the police defund and abolition movement. And it's, it's a bit of a problem when they are. Sometimes activists can sort of be... Uh, exclusionary. I say this as someone who's been in activist circles before and they don't want to get into certain issues. They'll say, well, police defunding, we don't want to bring that on board with our struggle because that's not what we're all about. We don't want to distract people. But like you're, like you're saying, uh, the struggle for economic justice and the struggle for 
some alternative to calling the police, some alternative to criminal justice, I think they are tethered in ways that we need to recognize. And But are we, I guess this one is for you as well, Kevin, uh, just because of the uh, the comments you've made so far. So are we saying then that any kind of reform to the current policing structure makes no difference whatsoever? I mean, I know, you know, I was a community development worker for many years. For a while, we had a very robust uh, community policing system where a couple of officers were assigned to neighborhood and their job was not just to respond to crime, but it was to develop relationships with community groups, with community residents, and to solve problems together. It was short-lived, I'll say that. And first of all, you have to have a police chief that's totally committed to that, that kind of approach and will provide the funding. But also the police tend to have this routine where they move police from district to district. And so, I mean, it doesn't work if you keep changing the community police officers. There has to be consistency there. But, I mean, it had potential. Isn't something like that, along with, you know, efforts at more training around trauma-informed responses, hiring more people of color, more women, um, all that stuff, isn't, isn't it still worth a try? I'll say a little bit because I know Ted has some responses okay. here as well, but uh, I'll say on the reform question, even though police have only been around for, let's say, 150 years, we've been trying to reform police for 50 years. We've had you know, sensitivity training in policing. We've, we've tried diversity quotas in policing. We've tried different kinds of leadership training. Uh, we've tried... Uh, gender sensitivity training. And in 50 years, we've been doing that in policing, it hasn't really changed the institution. So I'm very skeptical about reform within policing for, for those reasons. And then on the community policing question, I don't think we've ever really had too much of what community policing could mean. I, d I don't think we've ever really had community-driven policing. We've had something that police call community policing, and it's just a kind of rebranding of what they typically do. Uh, and by that, I mean those kinds of neighborhood resource officers or community policing officers. Yes, they do go around. They might wear different uniforms, for instance. But in the United States and in Canada, a lot of time the information that those community police officers uh, collect, they feed into the broader kind of crime mapping and aggressive strategies of police. So in other words, the, the information a community police officer picks up could get fed directly to a SWAT team that might perform a very aggressive intervention mm -hmm. the next day. So community policing is a kind of branding currently, I think, mm -hmm. and, it's a, and it's an attempt to rhetorically kind of justify the broader police institution. So I'm also pretty skeptical of the way police use the idea of community policing. Okay, Ted, did you want to add anything to that? I guess I, you know, I would concur with everything that, that Kevin's saying when you look at the long history of efforts to reform the police. Many of the things that are being advocated today as, as so-called new police reforms are actually things that we've been doing for 50 years or longer. One way, one way of coming at that question is to say that I don't think that the people who contributed to this book think that the core problem is the education, training, or mentalities of individual police officers. I think it makes more sense to think about whether the police are the right response to the kinds of things we're asking them to deal with, 
rather than asking, you know, whether this police officer could be better trained, could be a nicer person, could get to know the community better. Because once you start asking, you know, what kinds of situations are we asking the police to respond to? And what kind of response do we want? We see that 50 to 70% of, of calls right off the bat, we know would be better responded to by trained community workers, mental health workers, etc. And again, for me, it's like once we replace the police in 70% of situations, then we can have a conversation about what to do with the remaining 30%. But, um, you know, training the police to be better able to de-escalate, you know, mental health crises, etc., just seems to me the completely wrong direction. When we have people who have spent many years training to deal with mental illness, we could easily um, dispatch people with that kind of training who, who have trained been trained to care for people, um, not to enforce the law uh, or social order. Um, it would be a better, more caring society. We would radically reduce the number of police killings and people would get the care that they need. I want to address the issue of domestic violence a little bit. And I also witnessed a, an example, which I'll tell you about just very briefly. I was walking along a street in downtown Winnipeg. There was a car parked on that street. I could tell there was something off going on in that car. I was able to step far enough away that I could observe without being seen. And for sure, there was a, a man and a woman in the front seat. The man was furious about something, was ramming his fist against the windshield and then alternately pulling the woman towards him. And I couldn't see exactly what he was doing, but seemed pretty clear that there was an assault going on. Called 911. They had a ton of questions. I had to explain to them in detail what was going on. They arrived in about five minutes. Um, they got the guy out of the car, handcuffed, and then there was a woman police officer who got the woman out of the car, walked a distance away with her, and was having a conversation with her. At that point, I just left. And, but it seemed like it was de-escalated, that situation. I mean, no doubt this didn't solve the problem, uh, but that particular incident was stopped. And it took a, a fair amount of skill. Um, and not saying other people don't have that skill, but who would do that kind of work? I, I think it's a, a good example to look at, the example of domestic violence in the context of defunding and abolition, because there are a lot of domestic violence advocacy groups that have long argued that when we send police to domestic violence calls, a lot of times uh, the alleged suspect, maybe they, they are pulled out of the scene and they're, they're arrested. Well, they, they would be criminalized. And like I said earlier, criminalization has this kind of invisible social effect that we haven't really been focusing on. But more importantly, to, to your point, I think a lot of domestic violence advocates have said the victims of domestic violence are not well served by police either. They often feel like they're belittled, not taken seriously by police. And this has also been going on for about 40 years. They feel like sometimes they've even been treated aggressively by male police officers. Now, there's been a little bit of incremental reform where now they'll send women police officers, they have a little bit of extra training, but it still keeps happening. I know people who work in women's shelters, uh, at domestic violence agencies, and they still report that the victims of domestic violence feel like they're mistreated by police. So I, I think, like Ted was saying, this is one of the segment of calls for service where there are other people, other teams we could imagine that could respond, like people who 
have anti-violence training, gender uh, sensitivity training, who are social workers maybe, and if not social workers, maybe community workers. Uh, we could be imaginative and we could think of who could respond. And then last thing I'll just mention quickly, the fact that they responded uh, really quickly and in five, five minutes. I mean, the point of defunding is to divert resources so that we can have other kinds of education and other kinds of social services. So in high school, we're training men. It's not okay to sexualize and beat up women ever. We don't currently really do that in our society. We don't train young men to, to not be violent. In fact, we encourage them to be violent with all kinds of things. So defund the police, divert that money to training for young men so that it's unintelligible for them to, to be a violent person. Kevin, you might know this. Wasn't there, isn't there some talk in Winnipeg about developing partnerships between the police and mental health workers to go out together? Well, this is something that's, that's happening right now. There's actually a pilot project yeah. in Tor Toronto where there's more of a community group that is responding to some calls for service. And, and it's not, if there is a police member, there's maybe one police member. And there's, there's other options like this. Uh, like there's, there's a group in Oregon that for 30 years has taken a lot of calls for service, for, especially for mental distress kinds of calls for service. And they've responded without police at all. So even if you do have like a team or a partnership, police don't have to be a part of the, the team. They don't have to be on the partnership and there's other kinds of trained professionals, like Ted was saying, who don't have deadly force as a tool in their toolkit. What they have are other kinds of training and expertise, and th those kinds of teams, I think, uh, are the way to go. Uh, now, the question is, do they have to have a police person on them? I think police will always argue, yes, police will argue, yes, police should be on them, and that's because police want to continue to be kind of at the center of the network. But I think people in favor of defunding and abolishing the police would argue, no, they should not be at the center of the network. They shouldn't really be on these teams at all for quite a large number of calls for service. Okay, thanks. Uh, so just in the last couple of minutes that we have left, um, what does an ideal scenario look like to you? Police was abolished and other kind of systems were developed. You've, you've touched on it already, but if you want to say more about that, both Ted, do you want to start? So you're asking what the ideal the ideal system would look like? Yeah. I mean, I very much am a, a, um, learned a lot from a lot of abolitionist feminists in the United States, like Miriam Kaba, um, who argue that we're not going to replace this one-size-fits-all system with another one-size-fits-all system. So we need yeah. a lot of different things. It seems to me that one place to start um, is suggested by our, our, our friend and colleague Robin Maynard who says, you know, every time that we see the police intervene in a way that's harmful to a person of color or a marginalized person, we can ask if we remove the police from situ this situation, what can we add that would enhance safety, that would resolve that, si that situation in, in, a, in a way that enhances safety rather than making people more vulnerable. And so I think you can talk about things like if we're talking about drugs, well, we should end the war on drugs because it's only harmful. And with the money that we save from the war on drugs, we could put in place a whole bunch of things that would make drug use less harmful. Ending the war on drugs itself would make it less harmful, but there might be you know, uh, uh, support systems, rehabilitation programs for people who want it that we would want to fund. Um, when, we come, when it comes to policing sex work, it would be really nice to just have the police out of that equation 
because it's only making sex work more dangerous. When it comes to the policing of homelessness, we need the police out of that situation and we could use those resources to provide housing for people. The, the, one of the complex ones that I think about a lot is how to address gun violence and gang violence. That's a hard one because we imagine that if we just took the police out of the situation, things would get worse. That's not necessarily the case. But what's clear is that what actually can reduce gun violence are a whole series of interconnected community interventions from providing um, uh, mental health care to people who witnessed one of their friends get shot or have been shot and have survived, to summer job programs for youth, to mentorship programs that involve people who have spent time in prison, have gone through that life, who can show youth that there's another path. And then just conflict mediation, because we sort of take for granted when there's violence in really marginalized communities, we just attribute the violence to the communities. But oftentimes something gets out of, something escalates out of control. And we don't invest in having people around who know how to mediate conflicts so that people can, you know, continue to identify as they do, continue to have the friendship group that they do, um, but they don't, don't see it as in their interest uh, to respond tit for tat in a way that escalates towards you know, often uh, a fatal encounter. Kevin, can you just mention where this book can be found? Again, we're talking about the book called Disarm, Defund, Dismantle, Police Abolition in Canada. Yeah, so it's with a press called Between the Lines, which is out of Toronto. They have a website. There's lots of independent bookstores that are uh, having it on their shelves. And if you don't see it on the bookstore shelves where you are, uh, you can ask them to order it in. You can also just try to reach out to Ted or myself, and we will get you a copy. Uh, we would be happy to, to send you any resources, uh, including this volume, uh, if you're interested in, in this important matter. Okay, and if people want to reach out to Ted or Kevin, you can email the Afterthought email address. It's afterthought at ckuw.ca and we can pass you on to either of them. Thanks again, both of you, for shedding some light on this important issue. Thanks very much for having us on. Thanks for having us.